0: Section 27 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lisa Murphy, Richmond, Virginia. Chapter 8. Venice by Horatio Brown. Part 2. We have seen how the Republic dealt with her maritime colonies, especially in the instance of Crete. We may now observe her method towards her newly acquired mainland possessions. Her mild and provident sway was fruitful of many results favorable to the Republic, and it brought her dependencies back to her of their own accord after the disastrous wars of the League of Cambrai. To use the words of the Senate, the Republic of Venice in her relations toward her dependencies set herself to provide tater quod habiamis cor et amorum civum, et sudorum nostrum, and she succeeded. Her rule was just, lenient, and wise. Alike in her maritime and in her mainland acquisitions, her object was to interfere as little as might be with local institutions, provided her own tenure and the supremacy of the capital were maintained. In each of the more important dependent cities, she placed a civil governor, called the Podestra, and a military commandant, called the Captain, whose duty it was to raise levies and look after the defense of the city. These two, when acting together, were called the Rectors. The local municipal councils, varying in numbers, were left undisturbed and retained the control of such matters as lighting, roads, local taxation. The police and imperial taxation were in the hands of the rectors, and they were in constant communication either with the Senate or in very grave emergencies with the Council of Ten. The smaller towns were governed by a podesta, a capitano, or a provvedore. Each town possessed its own special code, called the Statuto, which the rectors swore to observe. The Statuto dealt with tree dues, roads and bridges, wells, lighting, doctors, nurses, fires, guilds, sanitary matters, in short, with all the multifarious details of municipal and even of private life. Peace, encouragement of trade, and comfort of living were the chief objects aimed at. In the Court of Justice, the Podesta, or one of his three assessors, merely presided. He did not constitute the court which was composed of citizens. Provision was made for public instruction in the humanities, in canon and civil law, and in medicine. Primary education was supplied by what were called schools of arithmetic. The cost of education was charged on the revenues of the province. The expansion of Venice on the mainland, while it increased the prestige of the republic, likewise augmented her dangers. Hitherto, she had been engaged in a duel with Genoa for supremacy at sea. No other Italian power had any motive for interfering in the combat. But, now that Venice had acquired a mainland territory, she became possessed of something that her mainland neighbors coveted, and of which they were ready to despoil her if occasion offered. Thus, during the final phases of her war with Genoa, We find the Republic called upon to face Carrara and Hungary, banded together with Genoa to destroy the mighty city of the Lagoons Louis I, King of Hungary, was ready to attack Venetian mainland territory with a view to wringing from the Republic a renunciation of Dalmatia. The courts of Gors viewed with alarm Venetian expansion eastward and were ready to join the Hungarians. The Cararici, though restored to the lordship of Padua by the Republic, were impatient under the certainty which Venice imposed, and were aspiring to an absolute independence. They too joined the Hungarians. From their conduct at this moment, Venice learned that she would not be safe until Padua was in her possession, and thus she found that having once touched the mainland she could not stop but was, by the very nature of the situation, forced further and further into the Italian terra firma, and along a line of action which was destined to land her in the disasters of Cambrai. It was obvious that Carrara would not remain quiet if he found an opportunity of attacking Venice with any prospect of success. Such an occasion presented itself in the War of Chioggia. Carrara assisted the Genoese by all means in his power. He bombarded Mestre and maintained the land blockade of Venice. He sent 24,000 troops to the neighborhood of Chioggia, and supplied the Genoese forces when they took up their quarters in that town. But the surrender of the Genoese let Carrara single-handed against Venice. He was still in possession of the Trevisan marches and was pressing Treviso so closely that its fall was momentarily expected. Rather than allow it to pass into the hands of Carrara, Venice made a formal surrender of the city to Duke Leopold of Austria, who immediately occupied it. All parties, however, were weary of the war. Venice was exhausted by her continual struggles against Hungary, Carrara, Genoa. Carrara disgusted at being balked of Treviso, Genoa crushed by the loss of her fleet. Amadeo of Savoy found little difficulty in negotiating the peace of Turin thirteen eighty one That peace left Venice little cause for self congratulation. She resigned to NATO's, the occupation of which had been the immediate cause of the war of Kioga, she lost Almatia. Treviso she had surrendered to Duke Leopold of Austria. On the mainland all that she now possessed was a narrow strip of territory round the edge of the lagoon. But the respite granted by the peace was devoted to the re-establishment of commerce and trade. Petrarch, from his windows on the Riva Scivoni, noted the extraordinary movement of the port, the huge vessels, as large as my house, and with masts taller than its towers. They lay like mountains floating on the waters, and their cargos were wine for England, honey for scythia, saffron, oil, linen for Assyria, Armenia, Persia, and Arabia. Wood went to Egypt and Greece. They brought home again various merchandise to be distributed over all Europe. Where the sea stops, the sailors quit their ships and travel on to trade with India and China. They crossed the Caucasus and the Ganges and reached the eastern ocean. And in the history of Venetian mainland extension, there was one task to which all this accumulation of wealth and resources was to be dedicated. The destruction of the Kararisi and the acquisition of Padua. Venice knew that the lords of Padua were permanently hostile. The action of Francesco Carrara soon proved that the Republic could not, even if it would, leave him alone. In 1384, Carrara bought from the Duke of Austria Treviso, Sineda, and Feltre, commanding the great northern road into the Pusterthal by Cortine di Ampezo. He was now master of all the mainland between the Alps and the lagoons. Nothing remained for him to seize in that direction. But westward, between him and the Visconti of Milan, lay the territories of Vicenza and Verona, feebly held by Antonio, the last of the Scala family. Visconti and Carrara entered into a league to despoil Antonio. Verona was to be added to Milan, Vicenza, to Padua. The attack was delivered simultaneously, and Visconti's generals entered Verona, but instead of halting there, he pushed on to Vicenza and captured that city in his master's name. When too late Carrara saw what his alliance with Visconti implied, he appealed to Venice for help. But although the Republic had no desire to see the powerful Lord of Milan so near the lagoons, she had still less intention of supporting Carrara, whom she knew to be treacherous. Visconti's emissaries were already in Venice offering to restore Treviso, Sineda, and Feltre if the Republic would assist him to crush Carrara. The terms were accepted, and Padua fell to Visconti. Such a powerful prince as Gian Galeazzo was not likely to prove a less dangerous neighbor to Venice than Carrara had been. But his rapid advance in power, and his obvious intention to create a North Italian kingdom, immediately produced a coalition against him of all the threatened princes. Venice joined the League, but she had no intention of challenging Visconti on the mainland herself. She adopted a less costly plan and invited the Kararisi to return to Padua, promising to support their enterprise. Sir John Hawkwood, the Florentine general, was pressing Visconti on the Adda. Visconti's forces were scattered. The Paduans, weary of his rule, rose in revolt, and the Kararisi recovered possession of their city, 1390. The peace of Genoa which ensued 1392 was highly satisfactory to Venice. Without any cost to herself, she had recovered Treviso, Sinedra Feltre, and consequently the passes. She had removed Visconti from the immediate neighborhood of the lagoons and replaced him by a Carrara whom dread of Visconti would certainly keep submissive to his protector. But in 1402, Gian Galeazzo died suddenly and the whole aspect of the situation underwent a change. The reason for Carrara's loyalty to Venice, his dread of Visconti, disappeared. The value of Carrara to Venice as a buffer between herself and Visconti no longer existed. The moment had arrived for Venice to consolidate her landed possessions by the absorption of Padua. The pretext was soon found. The Visconti possessions were now held by his duchess as regent for Gian Galeazzo's infant children. The duchess was weak. Gian Galeazzo's general began to divide their late master's dominions. This dissolution of the Visconti duchy roused the cupidity of Carrara. He claimed Vicenza and had an eye on Verona. He sat down before Vicenza, but the people, weary of the uneasy, shifting rule of these personal lords, Scala, Visconti, Carrara, declared that if they must yield to someone, they would hand their city over to Venice. Moreover, the Duchess had already invited Venice to hold Carrara in check, and the Republic had demanded as the price of her interference Bassano, Vicenza, Verona. The Duchess consented. Armed with this double title, Venice requested Carrara to raise the siege of Vicenza. He refused and mutilated the Venetian herald by cropping his ears and slitting his nose. War was declared. Carrara was gradually beaten back into Padua. A long siege followed. Carrara held out with great courage, hoping that aid might come from Florence, and that his partisans in Venice might succeed in carrying into effect a plot which they had concerted in that city. But the plague and the fury of the populace broke down his pertinacity. The Venetians delivered an assault, and with the help of the people, they entered the town, November 17, 1404. Francesco and his son were taken to Venice, where they were tried and condemned to be strangled. As the defeat of Genoa secured Venetian maritime supremacy, so the fall of Cararisi consolidated her mainland possessions. She now held Treviso, Padua, Vicenza, Verona, and their districts. The boundaries of the Republic were, roughly speaking, the sea from the mouth of the Tagliamento to the mouth of the Adige, the river Tagliamento to the east, the Alps to the north, the Adige to the west and south. This territory she retained, with brief exceptions, down to the League of Cambrai. She now entered the community of Italian states and enjoyed all the prestige, but also confronted all the dangers of an Italian principality. On the sea, the Turk was already in sight. On the mainland, the Visconti of Milan, with their claim to Verona and Vicenza, had to be faced, but, Before proceeding to narrate the history of the full-grown Republic during the period of her greatest brilliancy, we must consider for a moment two important points, her relations to the Church, and the nature of the Venetian Constitution, which played so striking a part in the creation and preservation of her glory. The political independence of the early Venetian state is reflected in her relations towards the Roman Church. The fact that, through the first centuries of her career, she was in closer touch with the Eastern Empire than with the Italian mainland, conduced to that independent attitude towards the curia, which characterizes the whole of Venetian history. Some flavor of an ecclesiastical quality seems to have attached to the office of the doge. We find that on certain great occasions he bestowed his benediction, and the earlier doges claimed the right to nominate and to invest bishops. This rite was, however, challenged at Rome. The head of the church in Venice was the Patriarch of Grotto. That see had been called into existence by the same causes which created the city of Venice itself, when Aquileia was destroyed by Attila, the Patriarch of that city, and his flock found an asylum in the lagoons of Grotto. After the return to Aquileia, a bishop was left behind in the lagoon city, and his flock was continually increased partly by the schism of the three chapters which divided the mainland church, partly by refugees from the repeated barbarian incursions. The Bishop of Grotto obtained from Pope Pelagius II a decree which erected his see into the Metropolitan Church of the Lagoons and of Istria, though Aquilia disputed the validity of the act. During the Lombard invasion and under the Lombard protection of the mainland bishoprics became Arian. The Lagoon See remained orthodox. The Metropolitan of Grotto then claimed that his see was the real patriarchal see of the Lagoons, in opposition to Arian and heretical Aquila. A long series of struggles between the two patriarchs ensued. The Republic of Venice supported the Lagoon bishopric. Finally, the Lateran Council in 732 decreed the separation of the two jurisdictions, assigning to Aquilia all the mainland and to Grotto the lagoons and Istria, and recognized the patriarchal quality of that sea. In 1445, the sea of the patriarch, as well as his title, was changed from Grotto to Venice, and the Bieto Lorenzo Guestinian was the first patriarch of Venice, an office henceforth always filled by a Venetian noble. The Cathedral Church of Venice was San Pietro del Castello, not St. Mark's. That magnificent basilica was technically the doge's private chapel, and was served by the doge's chaplain, called the primiciero, and a chapter of canons, an arrangement not without significance. For the shrine of the patron saint of Venice, the most splendid monument in the city, the home of its religion, was thereby declared to belong to the state, not to the Curia Romana, whose outward and visible abode was that comparatively insignificant building, San Pietro da Castello, at the extreme northeastern corner of the city. The anti-curial attitude of the Republic is obvious all down her history. In 1309, during the War of Ferrara, when Venice was lying under an interdict, the Doge Gradinigo enunciated the principle that the papacy had no concern in temporal affairs. And that a misinformed pope could not claim obedience. She again asserted her adherence to the conciliar principle when, in fourteen o nine, she recognized Alexander V, the pope elected by the Council of Pisa, against her own citizen Gregory the Twelfth, Angelo Carrere, who was deposed by that council, and yet again when she sent three ambassadors to the Council of Constance, who solemnly pledged the Republic to accept its decrees. By these acts she accepted the principle that councils are superior to popes from whom an appeal may lie to a future council, as well as the doctrine that an appeal may lie from a pope ill-informed to a pope better-informed. In spite of extra the Republic more than once availed herself of these rights. When Sixtus IV placed the Republic under an interdict during the Ferrisi War in 1483, Diego, the Venetian ambassador in Rome, refused to send the bull to Venice. The patriarch was instructed to present it to the government. He feigned to be ill and secretly informed the doge and the ten that the bull was in Venice. The ten ordered all clerics to continue their functions and announced their intention to appeal to a future council. Five experts in canon law were appointed to advise the government and the formula of appeal was actually fixed on the doors of San Celso in Rome. Again in 1509, Julius II, preparing for the combined attack of all Europe upon Venice, placed the Republic under an interdict by the Bull of April 27. The college, in the Council of Ten, which undertook to deal with the situation, forbade the publication of the Bull. The guards were ordered to tear it down, if it were affixed to the walls. Doctors in canon law were again appointed to advisers, and once again an appeal to a future council was affixed, this time to the doors of St. Peter's in Rome. The position of the Church in Venice, as defined by the close of the 14th century, was as follows. The parish clergy were elected by the clergy and the people, and inducted by the ordinary. Bishops were elected in the Senate. Candidates were balloted for until one obtained a majority. He was then presented at Rome for confirmation. But, in 1484, the Senate decreed that the temporal fruits should not fall to anyone who was not approved by the government. This really made the state master of the situation, and its position was further strengthened by a law of 1488 rendering all foreigners ineligible for the episcopate. Phoenician nobles who were beneficed were excluded from the Maggiore Consiglio, and when ecclesiastical matters were under discussion in the Maggiore Consiglio or the Senate, all members who were related to any one holding an appointment from the Curia were obliged to retire. The minutes were marked Ex Papalistis. The excessive accumulation of church property had been regulated by a law passed as early as 1286, which provided that all legacies to monastic establishments must be registered, and the property tax like any other. The question of the jurisdiction of the secular courts over ecclesiastics was a fruitful source of differences with the curia. Originally, it would seem that clerics were subject to the secular courts in civil as well as criminal cases. Jacopo Teoplo granted jurisdiction to the bishops, but reserved punishment to the secular courts. This arrangement gave rise to constant disputes. And in 1324, a commission was appointed to draw up regulations on the question. Finally, a convention was reached between the Patriarch of Grotto and the secular authorities, whereby it was agreed that in the case of injury done by a cleric to a lay, the secular courts should denounce the offender to the ecclesiastical courts, which should try and sentence him in accordance with existing laws, and vice versa in the case of injury inflicted by a lay on a cleric. By the bull of Paul II in 1468, those clerics who had been tonsured after the committal of a crime, with a view to securing benefit of clergy, were handed over by the church to the secular courts. So too were the clerics caught in flagrante and on Sixtus IV, in view of the growing frequency of crime, especially of counterfeit coining and of conspiracy, on the part of clerics, instructed the patriarch to hand over all such offenders to the secular courts but to assist at the trial in the person of his vicar. The independent attitude of the Republic in matters ecclesiastical is illustrated once again in the position occupied by the Inquisition at Venice. When the Pope, with a view to crushing the Albigensian and Paterinian heresies, endeavored to establish everywhere in Italy the Dominican Inquisition, the Republic resisted its introduction into Venice. But in 1249, in the reign of the Doge Morosini, the Holy Office was admitted, though only in a modified form. The state charged itself to discover heretics, who, when caught, were examined by the Patriarch, the Bishop of Castello, or any other Venetian ordinary. The examining court was confined to return a fact. It was called on to state whether the examinee was or was not guilty of heresy. Punishment was reserved to the secular authority. This arrangement did not satisfy the court of Rome, and in 1289 a modification took place. An inquisitor was appointed by the pope, but he required the doge's ex before he could act, and a board was created of three Venetian nobles to sit as assessors to the holy office. Their duty was to guard the rights of Venetian citizens against ecclesiastical encroachment. Without their presence and their sanctorini, no act of the holy office was valid in Venice. The Archive of the Sant'Ufficio is now open to inspection. Heresy was not the sole crime submitted to the jurisdiction of this court. Witchcraft and scandalous living furnished a large number of cases. But among all the trials for heresy, pure and simple, only six cases of capital punishment can be found, which were in each instance to be carried out by drowning or strangulation, and in none by fire. The Inquisition in Venice was certainly no sanguinary office, thanks no doubt, in a large degree, to the independent attitude of the state, which insisted upon the presence of lay assessors at every trial. But a large part of this independence in matters ecclesiastical, along with much else, was sacrificed at the disastrous epoch of Gambray. In order to detach Julius from the League, the Venetians agreed to the following conditions. The Republic renounced its appeal to a future council acknowledged the justice of the excommunication, abolished the taxes on ecclesiastical property, surrendered its right to nominate bishops, consigned criminous clerks to ecclesiastical courts, granted free passage in the Adriatic to papal subjects. But in secret, the Council of Ten entered a protest against all these concessions, and declared that their assent was invalid, as it had been extorted by violence a reservation of which Venice availed herself in her subsequent struggle with Pope Paul V. When championed and directed by Fra Paolo Sarpi, the Republic undertook to defend the rights of secular princes against the claims of the Curia Romana. The Venetian Constitution, which, on account of its stability and efficiency, compelled the envy and admiration of all Italian and numerous foreign statesmen, was a product of the growth of Venice, slowly evolved to meet the growing needs of the growing state. Democratic in its origin, the constitution of the Lagoon Islands was at first a loose confederation of the twelve principal townships, each governed by its tribune, all the tribunes meeting together for the discussion and discharge of business which affected the whole Lagoon Commonwealth. The jealousies and quarrels of the townships and their tribunes led to the creation of a single supreme magistrate, the Doge. The Doge was elected in the Condone, or Assembly of the entire Venetian people. His was a democratic magistracy in its first intention, but it soon became apparent that there was considerable danger lest the Doge should attempt to establish a hereditary tyranny. Any such effort was resented by the people, and resulted in the murder, blinding, or expulsion of several of the earlier Doges. On the other hand, as the state developed and pushed out beyond the lagoon boundaries, across to the Dalmatian coast, down the Adriatic, and away eastward, the more able and enterprising citizens began to accumulate wealth, and a division of classes made itself apparent. More, especially after such periods of expansion as the reign of Pietro II, Orsiolo, the capture of Tyre, and the Fourth Crusade. This wealthier class gradually drew together and formed the nucleus of a plutocracy. The policy of this powerful class, embracing as it did all the leading citizens, naturally pursued the lines along which Venetian constitutional development consistently moved. This policy had a two-fold object. First, to curtail the ducal authority. Secondly, to exclude the people and to concentrate all power in the hands of the commercial aristocracy. The history of the Venetian Constitution is the history of the way in which the dominant party attained its ends. The primitive machinery of the Venetian Republic consisted, as we have seen, of the General Assembly and the Doge. Very soon, however, under the pressure of business, two ducal councillors were added to aid the Doge in the discharge of his ever-growing obligations. Further, it became customary, though not necessary, that he should invite some of the more prominent citizens to assist him with their advice upon grave occasions, and hence the name of what was eventually known as the Consiglio dei Pragari, the Venetian Senate. But constitutional machinery of so simple a nature could not prove adequate to the requirements of a state whose growth was as rapid as that of Venice. In 1172, the disastrous conclusion of the campaign against the Emperor Emmanuel into which the Republic had rushed at the bidding of the condone, or General Assembly, called the attention of Venetians to their constitution and its defects. It seemed to them that reforms were required on two grounds. First, because the position of the doge was too independent, considering his discretionary powers as to whether and as to whom he would ask for advice. Secondly, because the people in their general assembly had become too numerous, unruly, and rash to allow of their being safely entrusted with the fortunes of their country. A deliberative assembly of manageable size was required, and its establishment implied a definition of the doge's authority on the one hand and the popular rights on the other. The evolution of these two ideas forms the problem of Venetian constitutional history down to the year 1297, when that constitution became stereotyped as a close oligarchy after the famous closing of the Great Council. The reforms of the year 1172 were threefold. One, in order to create a manageable deliberative assembly, each cestiere of the city was required to elect two representatives, and each couple in their turn nominated 40 of the more prominent members of their district. Thus, a body of 480 members was created. They held office for one year, and at the end of the first year the General Assembly itself named the two nominating representatives of each sestiere The functions of this new assembly were to appoint all officers of state and to prepare business to be submitted to the General Assembly. This is virtually the germ of the Magyar Consiglio, the Great Council, the basis of the Venetian oligarchical constitution. It had its origin in a double necessity, that of limiting the electorate, and that of securing adequate deliberation and debate in a rapidly growing state. Its prime function of appointing to office belonged to it from the first. Its origin was democratic, for it sprang from election by the whole people, but an element of a close oligarchy was contained in the provision whereby the assembly itself, at the end of the first, and of all subsequent years elected the twelve representatives of the six quarters of the city. two. The doge continued to summon the pregati to assist him, but seeing that the newly created council undertook election to office and many matters of internal policy, foreign affairs were chiefly reserved for the Senate, though that body did not become organized and permanent till the Tipolini reforms of twelve twenty nine to forty four. three With a view to restricting the doge's authority, four councillors were added to the two already existing. Their duty was to check any attempt at personal aggrandizement on the part of the doge, and gradually the ducal authority was withdrawn from the chief of state and placed, as it were, in commission in his council. The coronation oath, or promiscione, of the doge was subjected to constant modification in the direction of restricting his authority, till at last the doge himself lost much of his original weight. As his supreme power was withdrawn from him, bit by bit, the pomp and ceremony surrounding him were steadily increased. These reforms of 1172 display the inherent nature of the Venetian Constitution. The ducal authority is gradually curtailed, the council shows a tendency to become a close oligarchy, the people are removed from the center of government, although the complete disenfranchisement of the mass of the population was not effected at once. The newly appointed council did indeed endeavor to elect a chief magistrate without any appeal to the people, and a riot ensued which was only quieted by the electors presenting the new doge to the General Assembly with the words, This is your doge, and it please you, a formula which deluded the people into a belief that they still retained some voice in the election of the doge. The tendency displayed in the reforms of 1172 continued to make itself felt during the next hundred years, until we come to the epoch of the closing of the Great Council, whereby Venice established her constitution as a close oligarchy. The growing wealth of the state, especially after the Fourth Crusade, served to increase the influence of those families into whose hands the larger share of Venetian commerce had already fallen. We find certain family names, such as Contarini, Morissini, Foscare, recurring more and more frequently, and preponderating in the council, which the Law of 1172 had established. But the oligarchy was not closed yet. The yearly election of 40 members from each quarter might always bring some new men to the front. The closing of the Great Council, however, which actually took place in 1297, is not to be regarded as a coup d'etat, It was, rather, the last step in a long process. In 1286, a motion had been made that only those whose paternal ancestors had sat in the Great Council should be eligible to that council. The measure was rejected, but was brought up again ten years later by the doge Pietro Grattonigo, a strong partisan of the growing oligarchy. The measure was again rejected, but early in the next year, the doge succeeded in carrying the following resolutions. 1. The Council of Forty, that is, the judges of the Supreme Court, are to put up to ballot the names of all who have, at any time during the last four years, had a seat in the Great Council. Those who receive 12 votes and upwards are to be included in the Great Council. 2. On return from absence abroad, a fresh ballot is requisite. 3. Three members shall be appointed to submit names of new candidates for election. These electors are to hold office for one year. 4. The present law may not be revoked, except with the consent of 5 out of 6 Ducal councillors, 25 members of the Council of Forty, and two-thirds of the Great Council. The result of these resolutions was to create a specially favored class, those who had, during the last four years, sat in the Great Council. By the third resolution, admission to that caste was still left open, but the action of the Committee of Three soon completed the Serata de Maggiore Consiglio, and rendered the oligarchy virtually a closed caste, for they laid down for themselves the rule that no one was eligible to the Great Council, unless he could prove that a paternal ancestor had sat in the Council subsequent to its creation in 1172. By this regulation, all those and they were the vast majority, who had neither sat themselves nor could prove that a paternal ancestor had sat in the great council, were virtually disfranchised, for that council was the root of political life in the state, and exclusion from it meant political annihilation. In 1315, a list of all those who were eligible for election was compiled, and only legitimate children of parents belonging to the favored class were allowed to appear in this register known as the Golden Book. Thus, the Venetian aristocracy was created and was established as the sole power in the state. The exclusion of so many Venetians from all share in the government of their state led to the only revolution which ever seriously endangered the Republic the conspiracy of Bahamonte Tieplo in thirteen ten. Thanks, however, to the decisive step then taken, this conspiracy was crushed, and the Constitution of Venice was never again in any grave peril. For it was at this moment of danger to the State that the Constitution received its final touches by the creation of the Council of Ten. The accumulated difficulties and dangers brought about by the War of Ferrara, the Interdict, and the Tipolini Conspiracy taught the Republic that the existing machinery of the State was too cumbersome, too slow, too public. To meet and deal successfully with extraordinary crises. A special committee to direct the affairs of Ferrara had been appointed early during that war. When the movements of Tiepolo and his fellow conspirators, after their defeat, caused grave anxiety to the government, it seemed that some more rapid, secret, and efficient body than the Senate was required to track the operations of the traitors and to watch over the safety of the state. It was accordingly proposed that the Committee on Ferrarese Affairs should be entrusted with the task, 1310. The proposal was rejected on the ground that the Committee was fully occupied. It was then suggested that the Great Council should elect 10 of its members and the Doge, Miss Council, and the Supreme Court should elect another 10, and that from this body of 20, the Great Council should afterwards elect 10. Not more than one member of the same family might sit on the board, which was at once entrusted with the protection of the public safety and the duty of vigilance against the Tippellini conspirators. The committee acted so admirably that its services proved so valuable that its term of office, originally only for a few months, was extended and it finally became permanent in 1335. As eventually modified, the council took the following shape and was governed by its own code of procedure. The members were elected in the Great Council for one year only, and were not re-eligible till a year had elapsed. Every month, the Ten elected three of its members as chiefs, copy. The chiefs opened all communications, prepared all business to be submitted to the council, and acted as its executive arm. They were obliged during their month of office to stay at home so as to avoid exposure to bribery or other illegitimate influences. Besides the ten actual members, the council included ex-officio the Doge and his six councillors, to whom were added on very grave occasions a certain number of prominent citizens, called the Zonta. Of the normal 17 councillors, 12 made up a quorum. One, at least of the law officers of the state, the Avogadori Decumen, was always present, though without a vote, to prevent the council from taking any illegal step. The sittings opened with the reading of letters addressed to the ten. Then followed the list of denunciations which were either public, that is, signed, or secret, that is, anonymous. If public, the council voted whether they should take the accusation into consideration. If four fifths voted aye, the case was entered on the agenda. If the denunciation was secret, the Doge and his council and the chiefs were bound, before the question of taking it up came forward, to declare unanimously that the matter of the accusation was of public concern, and such a declaration required confirmation by a vote of five sixths of the whole council. This being obtained, the question of taking the matter into consideration next arose and was decided as in the case of public denunciations. The denunciation list having been discharged, the first case on the trial list then came on for hearing. The law officers of the state, Avogadori read a report on the case and submitted the form of warrant for arrest. The council voted to proceed or not. If the vote was affirmative, the warrant was issued and the chiefs gave it execution. When the accused was in the hands of the ten, a subcommittee, or collegia, as it was called, was appointed to draw up the case. They were empowered to use torture only by a special vote. The presumption was against the prisoner. He was called on to disprove the charge. intimare la defense. He was confronted neither with his accuser nor with witnesses. If he pleaded in capacity, he was allowed to consult one of the official advocates established in 1443. The report of the subcommittee was read to the council and a vote was taken as to whether sentence should be pronounced. If the vote was affirmative, sentence was proposed, any member being free to move a sentence or an amendment to one. On the result of the voting, the fate of the prisoner depended. In cases of crime committed outside Venice, but within the competence of the ten, that council could delegate its powers and procedures, its rito, to the local magistrates, who sent in the minutes of the trial to the chiefs. End of section twenty seven.